Hello guys and welcome to the Life School for Men podcast. We meet here weekly at the intersection of scriptural wisdom and 21st century life for men. It's here that we'll have intelligent conversations, conversations about the issues that guys just like you and I face in everyday life. So get ready, ready to laugh, ready to think, and ready to learn. It's on now. All right, let's move on. Now, we're going to move into something that's, again, a little bit different or disconnected from this. So I was just reminded this past week of something from, uh, anybody familiar with the book How to Win Friends and Influence People? It's an old staple of, of human relationships by Dale Carnegie. Here's one of the statements that Carnegie makes. It's not on your notes, but you might want to write it down. He suggests, and obviously he has a reason to suggest this because it's the reason he writes the book, but he said that in the in the process of doing something and being successful at it, he said approximately 15% of your success is going to ultimately depend on your competence. And as much as 85% is going to be dependent on what we would call soft skills. Your ability to work with other people, get them to cooperate with you, and get them to be on board about something that you're trying to do. Okay, 15% your raw competence, 85% your ability to listen to, to inspire, to work with, and to motivate other people. Now, here's what I'd like us to do. Let's say Carnegie's wrong. Let's say it's not 15 to 85. Let's say it's 50-50. Let's say 50% of the success of whatever you will do for the rest of your life is dependent on your competence. And only 15 or 50% is dependent on your human relationship skills. Are you there? All right, now, let's say he's wrong about that, and let's say that that ratio is right. Let's flip it totally upside down. Let's say that 70% of it is your competence, and only 30% of it is relationship skill. Let me ask you something. If you had to choose between having a 70% chance of success or a 100% chance of success, which would you choose? If those two options were open to you. And so here's something that we need to embrace. Everything that I can do as a leader to improve my relationship quotient and capacity is necessary. Well, when we talk about human relationships, one of the things that we focus a lot on is listening. Now, we, we talk about listening and we, we agree that listening is important because if you talk all the time but don't listen, what happens? Well, there's a lack of good communication. Information doesn't get transferred. Has someone in your life ever accused you of not listening? <laughs> but why is listening difficult? Okay, well, I keep myself busy. Here, here are some of the reasons why listening is difficult. Well, yeah, that could certainly be part of it, couldn't it? Or the way they're saying it, the way I filter it. So there's a number of challenges, not the least among them is this. There are times when you and I are prepared to listen, but people aren't talking. And then there are times when we're distracted and shouldn't be listening. And have you ever noticed this? People always come to you and want to talk to you at the most inopportune of times. Tell me that's not been true in your life. 
Uh, So-and-so needs to have a deep and meaningful conversation with you, and you're neck deep in distractions. Now, what, what's, what are the chances that you're going to listen well at that time? Now, we've all heard this. We're, we're not going to discount the fact that listening is important. We're going to say that if I'm going to develop my skills as a leader, I need to be able to listen well and understand. I'm sure you've heard all of the active listening skill suggestions, right? Right about uh, rephrasing what people have said to make sure that you understand it, asking good questions, taking time to think about it, etc., etc., etc. But something has to take place in order for you to listen. Somebody has to talk. Is there information that people aren't sharing with you? Because here's the big idea. Maybe it's not written on your page the way it should be. Observing is the visual equivalent of listening. Think about that. Observing is the visual equivalent of listening. And so if you want to understand more about what is, you need to observe more keenly and more accurately. Because that doesn't stop. Those cues are coming at us all the time. We don't need to wait for someone to speak in order to listen. The information is out there and available for us to see. How good are you at observing? How much do you just let slide by? Because if you want to be a great leader, you need to hone your skills at being able to observe things. All right. Anybody, everybody familiar with the phrase "reader leaders are readers? Or leaders are learners? That's another phrase? Why is that true? Before you look at the note. Before. Um, well... You need to put that word well after it. What, what did he say? He said, because if you stop learning, you stop leading. Yeah. But we all know people who have stopped learning a long time ago and they're still in positions of leadership. Right? So we know that that's only true if you want to lead well. Okay, so what am I looking for? What am I observing? It's because observation is a type of learning. And that's where we're headed with this. Observation is a type of learning. What can good observation teach me? And I put a list here. Huh? Here's my list. The world is bigger than we think it is. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's, it's more diverse. It's more, it's more complex. It's a lot more complex. One of, the, one of the reasons why they suggest that people who live in rural areas tend to think alike and think much more rigidly is because they haven't been exposed to different viewpoints and different ideas. This is the theory behind why cities are, are sort of like the place where great ideas usually, usually happen because great ideas are at the intersection of different cultures and different viewpoints. Absolutely. The best of the ideas, the best of the cultural influence, the best of a lot of things. Okay, so observing will help me to see that the world is bigger, it's more complex, it's more diverse. Here's another one. It's more needy. There are more opportunities, and we're going to get into the big theme for the morning, if we ever get there, is redemption. The world has the need for redemption in countless ways. 
It's more broken and it's more filled with opportunity. All right. I love this phrase that John Maxwell, I think, is the first place I heard this used, but I've since seen it at, at countless places. He said that the job of a leader is to solve difficult problems. But the typical leader spends most of his time solving problems, and I, I love the, the way he phrased this, that a junior high school kid could solve. But a good leader will spend at least 15 to 20 percent of his time solving problems that are at a level that only a great leader can solve. And when you hear the word problems, let's just be honest, what comes to mind? Does the word opportunity spring to mind immediately? John, Joe, Vinny, there's a problem down in sector four. Would you go look at it? What's, what's, what are your emotions when you're on your way down to sector four to look at the problem? What's going on in your mind? What did they screw up now? Go on. Well, I guess I'm not getting home in time tonight. What else? How big of a mess is it? How long is it going to take? You know, what's, what's the damage? Do you realize that if there aren't problems in life, there's probably no reason for you to be? Or at least as a leader? That the sole reason for your existence as a leader is because the world has problems that need solutions and you can potentially be part of the solution to the problem. And so as much as we hate, isn't this another paradox? One of the major responsibilities of leadership is to solve problems, and yet none of us likes problems and would like to avoid them at all costs. Now put the two of them together, and what do you have? You'll never fulfill your potential or your capability as a leader if you run from problems. I don't like that. I'd rather like to go, well, who doesn't want to solve easy things? You know why? Because easy things make me look fantastic. I'm the hero of the day. But big problems place me at risk of looking like something other than a hero. See, when I solve small problems, it's like I am the giant and I look at this pen and it's, it, it's well within my ability to do almost anything I want with this pen. But sometimes you and I are placed, what does it feel like to be Nehemiah? We'll, we'll go back to Nehemiah. Or, or more to the point, we'll be Moses for a moment. One guy and a couple of assistants leading countless thousands of people. Were the problems bigger than Moses? And was it like if he solved one problem, he was good and he could go back to his tent and chill for a month? See, as we read through the story, it's nothing. It's one problem after another problem after another problem with whiny, grumbly, miserable, cranky people. What was Moses called to do? To lead a people. In essence, what was Moses called to do? Confront problems and find solutions to problems almost every single day. Now, said like that, how many want to be a leader? From a distance, leadership looks good because when you're Nehemiah and you're a thousand miles away, what's going through your mind? I can come and save the day. The wall will go up. 
the people will love me. I'll be the governor of the land. I'll go back to be I'll go back to my king and I'll be a hero. But what is leadership? See, that's the mentality that sometimes we have when we're new to leadership. But what does leadership look like when you're crawling through the rubble? What does leadership look like when people are coming to you every single day with a new collection of problems? The people need food. The people need water. The people don't know where to go. The people are mad at each other. The people can't solve their own disputes and disagreements. And we're looking to you to solve them. What's the conclusion that you draw from that? It's going to be challenging. And? Yes, and in which point it's going to be exhausting. So let's not be dishonest about this. Leadership done well is extremely tiring, extremely hard work. And it's not always thanked work, appreciated work. What was Moses' reward for solving a problem, apart from more problems to solve? Were the people always happy with the solutions? Of course not. The golden calf did appear out of the fire. <laughs> I think they, one of the best attributes or characteristics of a good leader is the ability to let go of authority to do something. Last night I got a call at 11 o'clock, the tenant was having a party and their kitchen sink ejector pump started leaking and, and uh, their sink filled up. And my first instinct was to get upset, like now I gotta go to work, it's 11 o'clock at night, I gotta be here at seven, I call for snow and ice and I'm gonna get stuck at work. I have a sleeping bag in my car. <laughs> but I, I called the guy who was on call and he lives 10 minutes away in East Greenville, so he's got just as far to go as I did. And I say, hey, it's, it's your turn on call. I get that it's 11 o'clock at night, it's kind of a crappy call, but I'll put it out to you first. He went down there and it was literally five minutes reset at Trip GCFI, GFCI outlet, and cleaned up a little water. Uh, to him, the appeal was money. He didn't care. He looked for money, that was his goal. Nehemiah knew. The protection of the family was a goal that these people were worth fighting for. And he uses that. But he also gives them the authority to build and, and to use the beams that he has permission to use. He doesn't just tell them what to do. He oversees them while they're doing it, but they're able to use the beams that he's been given for rebuilding the gates. He's not doesn't say anything about it. No, he's over there checking their handiwork with it. He trusts them with the authority to do it, rather than just telling them what to do. All right, I want to look at human opposition for a moment. I don't know that we're really going to have time to get into all these, so the the texts are here that will reveal to you that sometimes when people claim that they are opposed to something. They're really not opposed to the thing, they're opposed to you. In other words, people will put up all kinds of screens about practicality. I'm opposed to this. It's not that I don't like you, it's not that I... But, but in, a, in reality, they're envious of you, or they're jealous of you, or they're jealous of the opportunity that you have. It has nothing to do with the principle that's at stake. Alright, so we're going to look at a, just one story here. So we'll turn over to John, the 12th chapter. 
Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Not an insignificant detail there. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And then here's the telling line. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and a keeper of the money. Okay, now John is insightful enough to be able to discern, perhaps not then, but perhaps later on, that the real motivation going on in Judas' mind had nothing to do with the poor, nothing to do with the money. So understand this, when you face opposition, there are people who will claim to be opposed to something for one reason, and it will seem like a very... Doesn't this at the surface sound like a very practical concern? How much do you make in a year? I don't want to know. I'm assuming you make at least, I don't know, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, 100,000, I don't know. That's a year's wage to you. So if I were to observe you taking a year's wage and doing something with it that seemed questionable, foolish, overly extravagant, what would my response be? It could be, what a waste. Doesn't that sound legitimate? It does. But the truth is, Judas wasn't really concerned about the legitimate need of the poor, John says. He simply wanted to have an opportunity to reach into the money bag and have a little bit more for himself. Have you ever been demoralized by the objections of others? Sometimes those objections are something underlying. The real objection has nothing to do with the stated objection. So when you are a naive or an innocent or an inexperienced leader, you personalize everything based on what people said. Now I know this sounds somewhat cunning, but you need to have enough discernment to be able to look at people's real motivations and not get lost in... Nehemiah faced this. Ezra faced this. There's a, there's a, a text in, in Nehemiah where Nehemiah is invited out into the middle of a field to have a discussion with one of the men who opposes him. And the inference is, come, let's reason together out away from everyone and we'll resolve this. But there's a backstory note that says, Nehemiah sensed, this guy just wants to kill me. Because if he takes me out... The work will stop, and he knows it. To be a leader is not only to come up against problems that are natural problems, it is to come up against human opposition, and sometimes human opposition is devious and cunning. We would like to believe that everyone tells the truth at all times. Now this may come as a news flash to you, they don't. Sometimes people tell untruths. No. <laughs> All right. A leader's work of redemption. 
And I'm going to let you read some of that. And what we're going to do, because this was one of the most important parts of my text, is, or my morning, was we're going to get over to these Scripture verses, and we're going to try to go through them quickly. So let's turn over to 1 Peter 1. Once you're there, wait for me to catch up. Alright, so we'll start at verse 17. 1 Peter 1, 17th verse. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in a reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through Him you believe in God who raised Him from the dead. Alright, now, I want you to read this. And here's your homework assignment. Go back and read these verses. I'm going to walk us through this as quickly as possible. Read this through the eyes of a leader. And we're going to see some lessons. Okay, so one more time. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. So the first thing that we can say is we have a father who has called us to a work. This is live your lives as strangers here. Now what what does that mean? Because sometimes we look at that and we say, okay, I'm a foreigner, I'm an alien, my home is not really here. I want to push back against that interpretation for a minute. And what I'd like to say is we are living our lives as strangers, not to planet Earth. Because remember, if we're going to be a person with a foot in the kingdom and a foot on earth, we can't be strangers to planet Earth. What we are strangers to and living in opposition to is a world view that seeks to assert self. Do you understand? We're not aliens and strangers to planet Earth. We are aliens and strangers to a worldview that opposes God and opposes God's kingdom. That's what we are aliens and strangers to. We were made for this Earth. Remember that. We were planted on this, not planted like potted plants, but we were set in the garden. We are people of the earth. God intended for us to do what here? To thrive, to prosper, to reproduce, to multiply, to inhabit the earth. To say that we are not people for and of the earth misunderstands this. Yes, we are to be here. It was God's plan that put us here. But we are to be here according to God's kingdom. And so we are opposed to, and strangers to, a worldview that sets itself, against, sets itself up against God. We talk about heaven and eternity. It's going to be new heavens, new earth. This earth yeah. is going to continue on. Yeah, it's going to be all this. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers 
Now, Peter calls us to think about what we're experiencing. But I'd like us to look at this from the reverse angle. What was Jesus experiencing? What was Jesus' call? It was to redeem. It was to redeem humankind. What was the price Jesus had to pay to redeem humankind? Don't miss this. If you're going to do something great, and we're going to double down on this in a couple of a couple of different texts, if you're called to do something great and something important, it might cost you your life. And I don't necessarily mean your literal physical life. You may have to give your life to this thing that you're called to do. If it's something important, it can't be casual to you. It can't be something that you treat like a hobby that you pick up and then you set down and you pick up and you set down. And whenever it's convenient, you get around to it, you do it. If you're called to lead something and it is something important, it will be consuming and absorbing. And honestly, it will be sometimes more than just inconvenient. You can read the rest of that later. Let's turn over to... Ephesians. In Him, we're verse 7, in Him we have redemption. There's that word redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He has lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So what are the three things that we get there? God redeems us through Christ. But notice what it says. He has wisdom and understanding when He did that. Did that. So it's not as if He redeemed each of us and didn't know what He got Himself into. See, he knew what a mess you were, didn't he? He just flat out knew what a mess you were. Say amen. amen. There you go. All right. He knew what a mess I was. It's not like he was shocked and he redeemed this thing and then he came to claim it and he said, Oh my word, I think I just bought a Rambler. Here I thought I was buying a Mercedes and I got a Rambler. Anybody remember Ramblers? You know what a Rambler? <laughs> John, do you know what a Rambler is? No. Okay, he does. He does. Probably saw one in a book with some time. It says he had understanding. Now, this is important. What is redemption? Let's focus on that for a moment. What is redemption? No? It is to take one thing and exchange it for another. Everybody remember? Anybody remember green stamps at the grocery store? Yeah, a few weeks ago, yeah. Did you? Yeah, you said in the sermon. But I remember, it was, I remember my mom collecting them and going to a store. Like she would send us in the store with this car with a whole bunch of green stamps yeah, on it. And we would get like a three gallon of milk. Well, there you go. Apparently many of us have experience with green stamps. Okay. So what is the principle of redemption there? It is an exchange. And it is the exchange of something that has 
less apparent value for something that has greater apparent value. So when Jesus redeems us with His life, now think about this, this is profound. What's being said? Yes. That Jesus' physical life was worth swapping out for our eternal life. And and whose and who's mind? See what it says here. It says, God's understanding and wisdom says that to redeem us was worth the price of Jesus' life. It wasn't like God was shocked later on and said, what did I get myself into? What a mistake this was. This is costing me my son to get him? No. Now what does that make you feel like? Because here's the principle. If you are going to be a leader who redeems some area in life, and that's what all of leadership is about, ultimately. Leadership is about redeeming something. Preserving what's good. Improving what needs to be improved. Cutting out what's bad and creating what isn't. All different aspects of redemption. If you are going to be a redeeming leader, you must first be redeemed. Think about that. To be a leader who brings redemption to an area of life, you first have to yourself be redeemed. And so we kind of push back on this idea that God really thought I was worth something. God thought I was worth enough that He was willing to watch Jesus go through that pain and suffering. The answer is yes. Even if you don't see it in yourself, it says that God's wisdom and understanding saw you and saw things in you that were worth redeeming. And so, of those four aspects of leadership, what's God modeling there? There was something that was worth preserving. Something about you was worth preserving and God was willing to redeem that because He wanted to preserve that. Now, until you're willing to embrace that, you can't have a full-fledged commitment to go out and be a redeemer because, what did we say? In order for you to be a leader, it might cost you something. It might cost you something great. Let's read this one more time. And then you go back and do your own personal study on this. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure. So why has He redeemed you? What's the purpose? He's redeemed you and I so that we can be, in turn, little r redeemers. That we can go through life seeking an area or areas of this world. Remember, we are strangers to a world system, but not strangers to the world. God loves this world. And He has called us... If you notice the stories throughout all of the Bible, God will involve Himself, but who does the sweat and grit and grunt work? It's us. He asks us to... Be, and, and Jesus is the model for that. Coming back to your example of leaders set an example. Jesus is the example for that. Jesus does the sweat, the travel, the work, the blood for redemption. Alright, come back and read that on your own. We talk about blood a lot. Leviticus 17.11 
For the life of a creature is in its blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore I say to Israel, none of you may eat blood, nor may any alien living among you eat blood. Okay, the principle here is what? Why is blood important? Life is in the blood. And so the demonstration of the fact that Jesus has given his life, we say Jesus has shed his blood. If you've ever gotten all kind of nauseated or tired of hearing about the blood, it's not because we celebrate blood. It's because to understand that Jesus gave his life is to say Jesus shed his blood. The life is in the blood. We're going to read this one more time. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement. This is important. God has given us everything that is necessary for our redemption. God will give us those things that are necessary that we don't have in order for us to execute our area of leadership responsibility in redeeming something. That's God's part. Our part is to accept the gift and deal with it. God does the giving. He's provided it for us. Alright, Luke 14. This will make much more sense if you do an in-depth study on it and start to walk through these things. Because this is one area of the morning where things are actually strung together in what I hope is a meaningful way. Even if the rest of the morning didn't make sense to you. We'll start at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then he goes on to use these illustrations. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? We'll jump down to the next one. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And then... Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? From a leadership perspective, what do you see in this that you need to make personal? It's being aware of what it's going to cost. And? Doing it despite it. You have a choice, though. You have a choice. This is, this is what he's saying. You have the option. You don't have to do this work. You get to do this work. And in the day-to-day, let me tell you, for Moses or for Nehemiah or pick any of the countless leaders that we see in the Bible, it did not feel like a great choice every day. Isn't it Hebrews 11? By faith so-and-so did, and it was counted unto them as righteousness. Over and over again, there's 26 examples. It's just amazing. Let's look at this final statement before we move on. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now, he uses that phrase in a different teaching sense at a different place. Yep. But, hear what's he saying. If you lose the heart and soul of what you're called upon to do, if you lose your commitment 
to be willing to lay down your life, if this becomes a hobby, if leadership for you becomes that thing that you're sort of half-heartedly committed to but not entirely sold out to you, how useful will you be? So if you are a leader who has lost their salt, so to speak, you've lost the very thing that can compel you to give up your life for this thing. And just think about how easy it is to be tempted, to be distracted. There's probably not a week goes by that if you are doing something difficult, you're not going to have a temptation to set it down because it's difficult. And yet what he says is the moment that you lose that driven passion to do this, your commitment to leadership is over. All right. Philippians 2. You know there's days when I think I should get a digital work from my phone or something instead of this. Oh, look at you. Do you want to read it? Go on, just read it. Philippians 2, 5 through 9. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Alright, and actually what we're going to do is we're going to start a little bit in advance of that. If you want to have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any encouragement from being redeemed, if you have any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Okay, so let's look at some of these attitudes. He's saying, if you have some of these attitudes, do you see something in the world that's broken and you'd like to fix it? Do you sense that you have been fortunate to be redeemed by God, that He didn't have to? Do you sense that in yourself? Do you sense a gratitude and appreciation for what God has done in your life? Do you see something in the world that you would like to bring God's redemption to? He says, well then, make my joy complete being one spirit and one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. This is one of the leader's great temptations. On the one hand, a leader can quit. On the other hand, a leader loses his distraction and starts to do what he or she does for personal benefit. So what are the personal benefits of leadership? Usually respect. Okay, so respect. People will think highly of me. What's another one? Disrespect. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're looking at these draws right now, okay? But good point, but well, what else? Well, certainly sometimes there are financial rewards for it. There's position, there's status, there's respect. There's, there's just a great feeling of, I made this happen. So there's sometimes self-fulfillment. So he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, how do I do that? 
Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, it's interesting because he starts out with what we're supposed to do and then he uses this model of Jesus. Don't miss this. He's calling on us to remember who we are as sons. See, if you are nothing, then you don't have anything to sacrifice, do you? You've got your small little life and that's all you've got to sacrifice. Paul is saying you can have a great difference if you are willing to make a great sacrifice and you can make a great sacrifice freely and willingly because God thinks highly of you. God thinks inestimably of you. Look at how He compares us to. He compares us and what we would do to the sacrifice that Jesus has made. So when Jesus calls His brothers, what is He saying? I've invited you to a noble sacrificial leadership in the same way that I have. You won't be me. But it will be the same model of you are worthy. You are valuable. And I am asking you to set aside your position to get down in the dirt with the thing in life that you're called on to redeem. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Do you know who you are right now? You are a son of the Most High God. That's who you are. That's who you are, that's who you will be. And you will not lose that call to be a son of the Most High God if you get down in the dirt and the muck and the mire. And our job is to be able to balance those two things. I am nobility. But even though I am nobility, I'm going to have to function at a very practical and dirty level some days. That's what he says Jesus models for us. Jesus is nobility. But he gets down in the dirt and the muck with right there with us. We'll read this one more time and then we move on. Wow. But being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. It doesn't say he was nothing. Remember this. When you have to do the dirty work of day-to-day leadership, it doesn't mean you are nothing. It's an attitude of mind. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him. So what's our promise at the end? Huh? That God will lift us up in the end. That we can depend on that. That if we set aside our vain pursuits and our conceit, if we set them aside, we don't set aside our nobility, we set aside the appearance of nobility. Jesus was God. Jesus just didn't look like God. You are a noble son of God. Some days you won't look like a noble son of God. I think we're going to wrap it right here. You've got the last two verses. And there's a couple of notes there. The 2 Samuel 24 thing. We'll look at the cost of sacrifice. And you'll be able to see there a leader's mistakes and the influence that they can have on the people. And then finally, the call to represent God. All right.